I am not perfect. And so when the gospel says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, to love your enemies, I cannot relate personally, but still as a priest, I'm charged to preach the gospel. And so you can expect this homily to be mediocre, but I do, while not knowing what it is to be perfect, what it is to love one's enemies, as Jesus says, I do think that it is important. And so I want to address three questions in this homily. Why is it important that we love our enemies, even though it is the most difficult of Jesus' teaching? What exactly is Jesus asking when he tells us to love our enemies? And how can we at least begin to do it? How can we at least begin to love our enemies? First, why is it important that we love our enemies? When I were, whenever I was in high school, I was beginning to go to spiritual direction. And I went with Father Mollet, and I'm on Senior Mollet. And I remember getting to a point where I realized, oh, God is calling me to be holy, and that is very hard. And so I went into his office, and I told him all my frustrations with what it was to live the gospel. And I asked him, quite frankly, why do you love God? It just doesn't seem like it's worth it. He asks everything from you, and he gives you back very little things that you would have anyway. And he looked at me, and he just said, because he's my father. And those words, as simple as they were, hit me very hard and processing it and like all of the baggage I'd brought in, the tears started falling and I realized that for me, love was very much, or the way that I saw love my whole life was very much a negotiation, a lot of give and take. And that God simply loving me because I'm his son and me expecting God to return that love because he's simply my father, which is some, not something that I was used to thinking of, like always figuring out what is best for me, as if I have to provide for myself. But that first movement that God simply loves because I am his son shows that he also does it while I am still his enemy. We heard in the second reading that there's the earthly man who is from earth, the person who knows what it is to be loved just with a human love, but then there's the heavenly man who knows what it is to be loved with a divine love. And if a tree is going to reach up to heaven, if we are going to reach up to heaven, that tree, that tree's roots has to reach down all the way into hell. The tree is to reach into heaven, its roots have to reach all the way into hell. And so in that moment, realizing that God loves just simply for the sake of him loving, without asking anything of return, it's also that God loves us in all of our sinfulness. He loves us all the way down into hell as he descended into hell for our sake so that we could ascend with him into heaven. But the reason why it is important to love our enemies 
especially in today's culture, is because we have lowered the standard for ourselves and we have forgotten mercy. We now live in a culture where unlike Christ, who is able to love his enemies, we and expect everything out of us. We live in a culture where we set the bar very low for everyone. We set the bar low for ourselves and everything that we expect of ourselves. We set the bar low for others. And so what we normally do is when someone makes a fault or a sin, we just simply dismiss it or we excuse it. But then if someone commits a fault that's great enough, then what do we do? We cancel them. We dismiss them. And they remain our enemies. And there is no loving of those enemies. They remain out on the fringes. Christ, on the other hand, holds us to a high standard. He expects everything from us. But he is the one who truly forgives. He is the one who truly does good to us while we are his enemies. He is the one who blesses us when we curse him. He is the one who prays for us whenever we mistreat him. Whenever we strike him on the cheek, he offers the other one as well. And whenever we take his cloak, he gives us his tunic of his virtues. He gives to everyone who asks of him. And from the one who takes of him, he does not demand it back. This is Christ to us. And because if we allow Christ to love us in the depths of our own sinfulness, then we can more and more be able to love others and show to others what is the love of God. Otherwise, the love of God just remains an idea. If we do not love others this is the way that Christ is talking about, then we treat God as someone who just kind of repays what we give him rather than loves us as when we were his enemies. Think about this. We do this all the time. If we are unable to allow God to have true mercy on us, what we normally do is that, let's say we fall into a sin that we're ashamed of. We say, I hate that. That is not me. That's not who I am. We go to confession. We get rid of that sin as quickly as we can. Or we just forget about the sin. We say, that's not me. That's not who I am. But then when someone else falls into that same sin, then we don't have any mercy on them. Because we hate in ourselves what we hate in them. Rather than recognizing that God has loved us while we are still his enemies. And that we're letting his love touch those hellish roots so that our love can ascend into heaven. But all of this, this meditation that God loves us while we are his enemies, seems to go out the window whenever we're actually approached by an enemy, whenever we're approached by someone who is difficult to love. It's like all of those nice and pious thoughts just kind of pour out the sides of our head whenever there's someone who's just just kind of a jerk. And so what is it exactly that Jesus is asking first? He says there are a few requirements, that we pray and do good, and to bless. We pray for those who mistreat us, we bless those who curse us, and we do good to those who hate us. Those are three things. 
what Jesus does not ask of us to do to our enemies. He never says, trust your enemies. He never says, befriend your enemies. Even Christ himself says that he does not throw his pearls before swine. And that at his last supper, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He does not require of us this kind of unconditional love toward our enemies. He asks us to do good to them. He asks us to wish them well, to bless them. And he asks us to pray for them. But he does not command us to be friends with our enemies. And he does not command us to trust our enemies. We can forgive our enemies without necessarily trusting them. But then who are our enemies? That's the other thing. I think if we think of terms in friends and enemies, we probably have very few. But as we saw in the first reading, the lines are crossed and blurred. The enemy to David in the first reading is Saul. And it seems like it's very clear. It's like, yeah, Saul's his enemy. Saul's trying to kill him. But then what happens the next year, or probably the previous year at Passover, whenever the whole family gets together? Saul is part of the family. Saul is David's father-in-law. That's kind of a tense and awkward relationship. You know, one second, maybe they're talking about, you know, um, his, his daughter, you know, David's wife. The next, Saul is breathing murderous threats and trying to kill him. But that's kind of the way that it is. I mean, most of the sins that we commit are with those that we are closest to. The lines are blurred between enemies and friends, between enemies and family. But it is doing good to those who cannot repay us back, or that we do not or cannot expect to repay us back. And those roles shift constantly within the family and within our friendships. And Jesus is asking again for us to pray and do good to bless those who curse, who curse us. And he does not mandate friendship, and he does not mandate trust. And so now that we know what the expectation is, and that it is realistic, how can we begin to do it? Because again, we can leave prayer, or we can leave Mass with a whole bunch of pious thoughts, but so often what happens, you know, we don't really have a, a parking lot here, what so often happens is we leave Mass, and then immediately we get into the parking lot, we, you know, we get mad at the person who's incompetent about pulling out of a spot. How do we keep present in our mind, even in those little things, the greater things, that we should love our enemy? I want to give a little reflection on the three ways that Christ is present. I think we have a nostalgia toward the past, toward the time of the disciples, to say, if I lived during the time of the disciples, I would have believed in Jesus. I would have known who he was, and I would have believed in him. It would have been so much easier. But no matter how much faith any of the disciples had, not one of the disciples saw Jesus' divinity. Not one of them. Even Thomas at the Last Supper, Lord, show us the face of the Father. Jesus says, I have been with you this whole time. I am showing you the face of the Father. And it's obvious that no one saw Jesus' divinity, because if they did, they wouldn't have killed him. Because he was murder on the count of blasphemy. Now, recognizing that, 
and that Christ hides himself in this humanity, it still perhaps would have been a little bit easier because we could see Jesus' love. We could see that this was a good, moral man. And then it gets a little bit more difficult when Christ makes himself present in the Eucharist. Because now he appears under the appearance of bread and wine. But under the appearance of bread and wine, especially during Eucharistic adoration, it's amazing how we can really sentimentalize the Eucharist. We can look at the Eucharist lovingly and in its simplicity, how Christ hides himself from the appearance of bread. We can love just the experience of something like adoration. It gets most difficult to see Jesus in those who are morally poor. We know that Christ is present in the poor, and he is most difficult to see not in the materially poor, not even the emotionally poor, but those in the morally poor, those who are actually wicked. And a lot of times, in the same way that we say, oh, well, if I saw Christ in his humanity, I would see him, or if Christ just showed himself in the Eucharist, I'd be able to see him more clearly. A lot of times what we do with our neighbors, we say, well, you're like, I see that you're bad, but show me one good quality. Just show me one good quality, and I will begin to love you. And sometimes there just isn't one, and we can't expect it. It'd be ridiculous to, for instance, know Adolf Hitler and say, you know what? He killed a lot of Jews, but he was a nice conversationalist, and for that reason I love him. You know? Like, that's just not a redeeming quality. Sometimes we just don't see it in people. And so how do we love them? With the same love that we have towards the Eucharist and toward Christ and his humanity. We love them because Christ is trustworthy. We believe that Christ is who he is because he is trustworthy and he showed it on the cross. We believe that Christ makes himself present in the Eucharist because he is trustworthy. And we believe that it is good to love our enemies because Christ is trustworthy. Because even though I can't see any good in my enemies most of the time, Christ, who sees better than me, obviously does. He is the one who pours his blood out for us while we were his enemies. He is the one who died so that we may have life. He is the one who sees into our own sinfulness and is able to say, you are redeemable. You can be transformed. You can be made holy. So for this reason, Christ asks us to love our enemies. Not because we see good in our enemies, but because ultimately Christ does. That he sees it. And that we should look with his eyes, and when we can't see with his eyes, that we can trust off of his authority. The Lord is trustworthy. He loves us even though we are his enemies. And he simply asks us to do the same toward our enemies because he expects us to love them with the love that he has already shown to us.